this is Jeffrey Madoff, and welcome to our podcast called Anything and Everything with my partner, Dan Sullivan. Today, it's going to be everything about anything. Yeah, I have Jeff Madoff here. I'm very excited about this week. So I think Jeff is 10 times more excited about this week, and so his Broadway play, and it's already been labeled as that in some of the reviews, a pre-Broadway premiere of a play, and it starts in Chicago. The previews, the previews start. Tell me what the previews, Jeff. First of all, say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> anybody? <laughs> anybody. <laughs> Turn up the volume on your computer and open your windows. Yep. Saying hello to everybody. Yep, and finish your weed and <laughs> step it out. But preview week, I kind of dress rehearsal and that sort of thing. But preview is an interesting stage of a new play opening. Yeah, it is. You know, you start off going through rehearsals. And the rehearsals start with a table read, which is literally just sitting around and hearing the story for the first time, hearing the other actors' voices, all of that. And, you know, sort of dipping your toe in the water before you are really submerged during rehearsal. Rehearsal is the time where not only do you get the lines, you'll get notes from the director and myself, the choreographer, and the musical director. And it's all broken up into different kinds of segments. You know, like this particular person or group might be working from 10 in the morning till 1 on harmonies for the songs you know, where the choreographer is breaking down the dance bits. And it's all quite fascinating because you realize it's all kind of a mosaic and the different things come together. So if you're seeing a two-minute dance number, you know, that two-minute dance number is a bunch of little segments put together to all work together. In our dance segments, especially in the opening number, it's very acrobatic. There's flips, there's pulls through the legs, there's, you know, over leg over somebody else's head and you know, all this stuff. So also safety is a big deal. You know, you need to keep your cast safe because uh, uh, we have a, a, we have a physical therapist on staff just because, you know, there's bound to be pulled muscles or sprains or stuff and you want to take care of immediately. So all of these different things start coming together, then also layering in the nuance with the actors in terms of them not only warning the parts, being off book, which means they aren't holding the script. And all of that comes together, and then you start doing run-throughs, just the first act, then you do run-throughs of the second act, and then you do full run-throughs. To me, like any any creative project the process is what's so fascinating and i know you dan love that as you call it backstage part of just how does it all come together and it's really cool so that's the rehearsal period what happens after the rehearsals in the rehearsal room you move into the theater which we just did this past friday <laughs> and it's a whole other thing because if you're in a rehearsal room, you know, it doesn't have the steps. It doesn't have, in our case, the second floor of set. And there's a whole different scale because the stage is much bigger than the rehearsal room. Mm -hmm. 
So although they may know that they exit right where the arrow is on the floor in the rehearsal room, that could be a 30-foot, 40-foot walk across the stage. Yeah, it requires different pacing. That's right. And different pacing, not just in the physical movement, mm -hmm. but you may find that... Timing is different. Exactly. That's right. So that all gets reoriented. And that's really interesting. And so the first rehearsals are just kind of blocking and tech rehearsals. And I wish you could see the tech rehearsal. You saw a sound check, but like the tech rehearsal, we have about 70 people there. Wow. And it's programming the lighting board, finding out at each point where the actor is physically, how we want to light them. We're using, like we did in Malvern, we got this state-of-the-art sound system. Our sound designer, Rob Kaplowitz, is a Tony Award winner. He got this company in Denmark that I believe they're from Denmark, where they put these sensors around and you can literally make the sound appear to originate from wherever you want. This can be behind the audience or it can be they turn on a radio and it seems to come out of the radio or if young Lloyd, who is miming a playing piano, our piano player and musical director, Shelton Beckton, his sound seems to come out of that piano. I mean, it's really cool. It's really cool. And in a bigger theater like this, bigger than what you saw when you came to Malvern, that sound and oral spacing is really immersive and really interesting. And then cueing the projection. And on any given moment, you're cueing the projection, you're cueing costume changes, wig changes, lighting changes, line changes, everything. It's interesting because the tech rehearsals are not interesting in that every step takes quite a while. I find it fascinating because it's just an essential part of the whole process. And you realize how much stuff goes into these things that we see. It's just incredible. And all of the people that we're working with are just so talented in their own ways that contribute to the whole that's absolutely fascinating. It's really cool. And so once you get all of that done, because you have to make sure, like you mentioned timing, you have to make sure they have enough time to change costumes. Yeah. Can they make the travel and exit stage right because they've got to re-enter on stage left? upstairs you know and it's all of that stuff yeah you know and of course the audience should take it for granted it should seem absolutely seamless mm -hmm. but there's a lot of seams that need to be stitched together in order to make it happen mm -hmm. and then we get to previews now we start previews because we haven't done any costume run-throughs or full show run-throughs or dress rehearsals yet that's all this coming week <laughs> What you're describing here is not unique to this play, right? Except this is a premiere. There's a great American songbook, but there's a great Broadway musical, South Pacific. You know, I mean, Rogers and Hammerstein, Rogers and Kern, Lerner and Lowe. And these are like operas. You know, it's like they come back. But, you know, there's a lot of wisdom. There's a lot of organizational wisdom that goes along with these plays. All the organizational wisdom about this play had to be created as the play was created. That's right. But you're also correct that, yeah, these are the steps that all musicals go through. Yeah. You know, all of these things. It's not unique to us. 
What's really interesting is when you mentioned some of the classics, they didn't have computerized programmable lighting boards. They also didn't have microphones. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know, it's project to the back of the house. You had to have a good voice back in those days, you know. That's right. There yeah. weren't the little microphones on them. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, I think about that because it was probably harder. You know, it was harder. Now, you couldn't, literally could not execute the kinds of things we're doing back then. You couldn't have as many lighting cues or sound cues as we have, as modern plays have, because no human could pull that off. <laughs> you know, it just couldn't happen. Well, you also have the set here is very, very clever because when you come out, I mean, it's open screen. At least it was in Melbourne. It was open screen. I mean, there's no curtain that goes up. Is it the same here? No, we actually have a curtain. So there's going to be that, which I love. Yeah. That magical reveal when the curtain goes up and you see the set and all of that. And in our case, it starts off, as I'm sure you remember, with all the dancers lit dramatically frozen in a position. And that begins Lloyd's memory play as Lloyd starts walking through the dancers and then it comes to life. Yeah. But yeah, we're going to be opening a curtain. But the other thing is because the set designer has these slats, basically, I don't know how wide they are on a big stage, but there's slats. And you said, Jim, what's this all about? And then all of a sudden you realize he can create almost a movie-like quality to the play with the uh, slats, you know, and you do different things with the set that's there and the musicians they were on stage. Are they in the pit? No, they're all on stage. Which is great. That's totally appropriate for this particular yes. play, you know. All of these things we're talking about, all of these elements that has to come together. And then you realize that these things have to come together eight times a week live. The respect that I have for everybody involved in terms of their ability to do that. You know, if you're making a movie and something screws up, you stop and do another take. Yeah. In theater, you make a mistake, your scene partner, or if you're on stage alone, you got to recover so nobody knows you made a mistake. You know, but hopefully the audience doesn't. You know, and that's something. You know, you mentioned earlier about the nightmares that actors may have. You can understand why. Yeah. You know, it's cool. But our, our set designer that you, you mentioned, David Gallo. He's a six-time Tony Award-winning set designer. He and I met, and then he did my class. As I listened to him talk about how he did what he does, I found it so fascinating. I said to him, you know, David, I'm doing this play. I would really appreciate it. If you would read the script, I'd love you to do the set design if, you, if it resonates with you. And he read the script and he called me and he said, I'm in. <laughs> And she really says, yeah, this is right in my wheelhouse. I'm in. I want to do this. And he said, I'll tell you now, because you're going to hear it from your executive producer. My agent doesn't want me to do it, but I'm doing this play. I love this. And he's been fabulous. And his work, as you saw, is innovative. And those slats you're talking about are these LED screens <laughs> that are like tall, thin, looking like slats, if you will, like you said. I know we do a lot of the different kind of transitions. On a big stage, I don't know how many there are, but 
you know, the human eye just fills in the spaces. The interesting thing about the human eye, first of all, our brain fills in most of what we see. We only see about 10% of what we're actually looking at, and the brain fills it in for memory, you know, what you're not seeing. But here he's really, <laughs> he's really having the human brain do its tricks because you sense that it's a full screen. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You're right. But it doesn't overwhelm the actors on stage. You don't go into television mode with it. It just plays into what the actors are actually doing. Right. And then, by the way, another thing that didn't exist in the era of those classic plays, there weren't LED screens. Yeah. You know, but of course there was great theater done. Oh, yeah. Well, there are great stories. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There was great talent and there was great stories. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, it's the same thing in movies. You know, the nonlinear editing that came about around 30-some years ago, that didn't exist. People sat with razor blades cutting film on the steam back and, you know, cranking the reels. When you think about, wow, what they had to go through to execute an idea, you know, but everybody had to go through that. Well, just remember like, the movie Cinema Paradiso? Yeah. Yeah, where the parish priest in a small town, Italian town, and every week the new film would come in and the priest went down and went through with the projectionist and he razored out everything that was kissing, was too long, hugging, everything that could possibly inform his parishioners what he wasn't enjoying. <laughs> the priest... And then there's a little boy who helped out the projectionist, and then the story goes on. But it's some of the most gorgeous background film music yeah, that's ever just going to say that. Yes, fabulous theme. I mean, so evocative and emotional. Oh, yeah. And he's only a guy who did about 150 movies. And, you know, I mean, this guy, the composer, he must have knocked out a score every month for 50 years or something like that. I mean, this one was just perfect for the, oh. and it sort of played and suggested itself all through the movie in different settings and everything like that. And the thing is that great stories don't depend upon technology, but if you're using technology to do great stories, the technology really has to match the power of the story. And you started with a very powerful story. The music was already written. The music was already famous. But the story was not known, and that's what you've done here. And that's been suggested, even though I get that the reviewers so far don't really, really get how pioneering Lloyd Price was. Well, that's right. By the way, I love your distinction because it's so correct in terms of it all starts with story. The technology has to be in service of the story. You know, I was fortunate enough, I worked with Vilmo Sigmund, who's one of the legendary cinematographers. We did some projects together. He was fantastic. And so I said, how do you approach what a film's going to look like? He said, well, I read the script. I talked to the director. He said, but you have to understand everything I do is in service of the storytelling. And that's true with costume design. 
that's true with lighting design and film. The, the lighting designer and the cinematographer, that's the same person. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting because there are people who are talented, but they don't know how to deploy their talents in service of something. Oh, they yeah. just want to be their own fireworks display. Yeah. And that's true in business, too. You know, are you going to align with people that can make the whole much greater than any of the parts, or are you just going to try to show off? I'm working with such a great group of talented people who are into this story, fortunately. And, you know, that in service of what you're in service of is a huge point in what you said about the technology. The technology can be a good facilitator if it's in service of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing is we're talking on a Sunday and Friday five days from now is the first preview. So tell me about the first preview. Well, the first preview, as you said, is June 2nd. What happens in previews and preview times vary. Some shows have very few previews simply because of budget. And, you know, everyone would like longer preview period, but it's expensive. And the idea is that you put the show in front of paid audiences. Preview tickets are discounted. They aren't the full price tickets because people know it's not necessarily exactly the way the audience is going to see it after open. But the purpose of the previews is to get the audience response. It's a shakedown too, right? Uh, how do you mean that? They have shakedown cruises. You know, the boat goes out for three or four days as Someone who goes on cruise ships, when they have a new ship and that, they'll have passengers on so they can see what meals are like. They can see what entertainment's like. It's called a shakedown cruise. So this is a shakedown week. Yes. I mean, during the rehearsal period. I mean, your writer's pen is always fully exercised. That's right. right? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Two rehearsals. Then as we go into previews, like our previews run from June 2nd to June 13th, and we open on the 14th. During the whole preview time, not the whole preview time, but when an audience, a preview audience is there, you see, do the jokes land? Are they wowed by the dance numbers and the music? Are they listening to the serious monologues and the fun monologues and the fun dialogue? And you gauge audience response and see, you know, we thought this was working. It's fallen flat. We got to do something. And you do that. And that's what preview period is about. The other thing that preview period is about, to me, and this is something that I learned, because the buying patterns have changed since COVID. Unless you're doing something that's a star vehicle, very limited run, they'll buy in advance. But otherwise, people are buying much closer to the event. So that's very nervous-making for people who are financially at stake because you can't do the same kind of projections you used to be able to do. It's much closer within a couple of weeks or so, sometimes within the same week in terms of purchases being made. So I look at the preview audience as also marketing megaphones. If they like it, they'll tell people about it. Yeah. And you want to get the word out. How are they chosen? Well, two things. There's the people that just buy preview tickets because, you know, it's more affordable and that's fine. Yeah. And that's kind of like having part of a backstage experience. Yes. And then you have, there are groups that come in during previews because, you know, 
school groups, church groups, civic groups. We have a group salesperson. So she accommodates them. And if there's someone who wants to go to a preview, just because it's more affordable for their group or whatever, and a group is anything over eight people, in our case, anyhow. We have groups of 100 people booking. We have groups of eight people booking. We don't choose them, but they have the options of attending previews, you know, or whatever. I wonder if it's people like influencers, too, who would come. People depend upon them to check things out, and they check it out. And No, and that's another interesting point. Because like Tony D'Angelo is a very, very big influencer. Like, he's got a, a vast audience, you know, and he said great things about the Malvern. I think he was there the night we were there, too. I mean, I think he may have come before that, but he was... Yeah, I think he came twice. Then he came with yeah. your group, and then he came the very first night of preview. And it was funny because I was there in the audience. They were just trying to let people in. And a guy comes up to me and said, are you Jeff Madoff? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, I recognize your voice. I listened to you and Dan Sullivan's podcast. <laughs> so I thought, oh, that's fun. That's cool. Yeah. Nice guy. There's an anyone. <laughs> <laughs> But what you might not know about the previews is that in our case, since our last preview is the 13th, the show is locked at the very latest. The show is locked on the 12th. And if you can, you lock it sooner. The reason is that you don't want any changes in the last two days. Those are the final full run-throughs before the show. And... When you make changes, whether it's a change in timing, which changes the music cue, which then changes the actor's cue, which then changes the other actor's cue, you know, it's a whole throwing a rock in the water. It's very disorienting. And if you edit a line and it changes the cue point for the other actor on the scene, you know, you really realize and gain. I have tremendous respect for actors and I love working with them. They adaptability of these people must be enormous 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 i mean you got to adapt in a matter of minutes you, in some cases you know that's right and when there is a flurry of changes like going on during rehearsals and they're having to get their new pages and they're getting the pages at 10 o'clock and they're starting that scene at 10 10 <laughs> you know no joke it's like that yeah so some will want that even though they've got the whole thing they're off book they'll need that page just to remind them that there has been a change and yeah that adaptability again a great thing for any business yeah to be able to be adaptable and flexible in those things i have such tremendous respect for the actors and for the dancers and all of those people because, you know, there's the old tropes about how crazy actors are and so on. They're professionals. And you really appreciate the professionalism and exactly what you're talking about, that adaptability that's so quick and they're able to embody that change and move forward so quickly. Yeah. But everybody who's backing up the actors has to be as ad adaptable. That's correct. That's right. Because there might be music, slight music changes, could be big music changes. There might be lighting changes. There might be dance changes, you know. No, that's right. 
That's right. And then there's the other stuff you find out. Like everything seems to be going well. Like right now, they're just seeing them in costume and we're doing transitions in and out of different things and seeing some of the costumes for the first time. They aren't finished yet, <laughs> but you know, you're getting an idea of what it is and the wigs. Yeah. And the interesting thing about the wigs is that because we are true to the times, there are those black wigs that are processed, you know, where the hair was all smoothed out and so on and, and made wavy. And then there's the naturals. And our wig designer, Jared, who is phenomenal, does all the Broadway shows. Really good guy. He did my class also. And this was fascinating. Here's an interesting business point about it. He's a physicist. And by accident, he started doing this wig design. And good career, by the way. It was, you know, he said that you can very quickly be making well over six figures well into the six figures because it's a craft that fewer and fewer people are going into it's like plumbing you know and you can make a really good living very creative in a pretty neat setting you know working and he's done every major broadway show safe from chat and jp that's right well i think the whole live experience is safe from that you know yeah oh yeah yeah any kind of <laughs> hand-skilled thing is going to be safe. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of people who are educated to change the world, but they can't change a tire. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, well put. It's really interesting because something as primitive as theater, because that goes back to, you know, when I think the first time there were two people together, one of them was acting. You know, and for whatever reason. And I think it is future proofed because we are at our essence as humans yeah. need to connect. And the lack of connection caused lots of emotional problems. Well, it's interesting. There was a front stage Wall Street Journal yesterday, and it was a guy who's a AI specialist. You know, he knows the world that's suddenly emerging. And he goes around, he gives talks, and he said, if you want to be safe from AI, be more human. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Right. He said, just watch everything that makes humans human and do more of that. Yes, I so agree. I mentioned that book, which I thought was so tremendous, The God-Human-Animal-Machine. Yeah. Which is very much about that. It's fascinating. I mean, I think, you know, that's why people go to plays. That's why they go to live concerts. That's why they go to sporting events. Oh, yeah. Comedy clubs, you know. I exactly. Mean, that's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. Why they watch street performers. That's you know, right. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I was just watching CBS Sunday Morning this morning. I love that show because they tell really good human stories. It's wonderful. And there was this street musician, this woman who was an astounding clarinetist and she plays down in you know the basin street on the street in a corner there and they call it her corner because she attracts crowds because she's so extraordinary when she was interviewed two years ago on cbs sunday morning the correspondent said so where would you love to play and she said kennedy center the head of the kennedy center saw that segment called her up she is now 
doing a Kennedy Center engagement and it's sold out. And it's so wonderful. And she's extraordinary. She's absolutely extraordinary, but it's so wonderful. I mean, these dreams, these fantasies can come true. But you also have to realize that, you know, she has been playing on a street corner for probably 25, 30 years. Speaking of the actors and the adaptability and the difference between amateurs and professionals, I read a ton of murder mysteries, you know, a lot of international intrigue, and I like that. But the authors have real gems. There will be like a paragraph because to be plausible, they really have to understand the history of places, the geography of places, and, you know, how things actually work behind the scenes. And this one, he just made a reference about amateurs and professionals. And he said, amateurs are people who practice till they get it right. And he says, professionals are people who practice till they can't get it wrong. That's great. I love that. That's really great. And it's true. Not getting things wrong, it's not an event. Not getting things wrong is a capability. That's right. Like what you've talked about right from the beginning of your stay in Chicago is everybody in the production getting to the things where they can't get it wrong. Yeah, and it's really interesting because different actors have different processes and ways to get there. So our lead, who is extraordinary, We've got such a great cast. I'm so excited for you and Babs to see. Well, the other thing is that you had cast members who were also, they're basically on stage coaches. They're on stage directors because one of them's been with us since the original reading. Yes. Stanley Mathis, who plays Logan. Logan. Yeah. He's so good. Well, and he's like an anchor. He's, I mean, personality wise, he's like an anchor. He is. He kind of looks like an anchor, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's so cool about Stanley is that he's a, been a constantly working Broadway actor for 35 years. And he said to me, and I love this, he said, this is the part I want to play. He turned down other work to do this because he was well, no. works all the time. Yeah. And he just loves this part because he said it's the closest part to me I've ever played. So he has, as you said, been doing it from the beginning. And what's so cool about that is, so he was at the 29 hour. He was at the workshop. He was at Malvern. Now he's with us here. He is still experimenting. He is still peeling back layers. He's still finding nuances. And he may do something on Monday when we're doing his scenes. And then Wednesday, He's got another take on that. Yeah. Like a jazz musician, you know, and he's constantly exploring. And what's so cool about it is what you're saying in terms of not getting it wrong is that he knows his lines so well that he can play with them. He's not going to forget anything. He's not going to go up on a line. He has that capability, which gives him the opportunity to explore. And he's not going to get lost. Okay. Just occurred to me. Not getting it wrong means that afterwards you think you did 80%, but the audience thought it was the best 100% they've ever seen. Yes. Because it's in the eyes of the audience, whether it's right or whether it's wrong. Right. And just like, you know, we are speaking earlier about if you make a mistake in theater, chances are the audience doesn't know. And if you have a good scene partner or you're adept yourself, you can cover it. Oh, yeah. And they don't know that it wasn't. Yeah, it's supposed to be that way. 
Yeah. And that's another sign of being a professional because an amateur frees. Well, this is a question because we both were born in the 40s and grew up in the 50s. To what advantage is the fact that speech in general has become more informal over the years? To what degree does that give you a, a little bit of flexibility for people being able to make things up on the spot when they're off track? Because we're used to it with people. And what I mean is that you are taught to speak properly. Mm-hmm. And that's a very, very loose concept these days. I mean, you and I have our, you know, 1950 standards of what represents, you know, actually it was, I still have the ruler marks from first and second grade, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I was metaphorically beaten. I wasn't physically beaten, but I was metaphorically beaten. But the big thing about it is we're kind of used to a certain, you know, people coming at it one way and then coming in the same conversation, you know. I was just wondering if that gives a certain amount of flexibility when you've not done it right, but you can do it. And the audience hearing is, you know, it's kind of normal. Well, I hadn't thought of the idea before, you know, I just brought it up. If you go up on a line, which means you've forgotten your line and you improvise something quickly to get you out of the jam, that's a one-time experience, hopefully, or one-time occurrence. Yeah. In film, what you're talking about happens much more. Yeah, because it can be added. You can do retakes. Yes. And however, in theater, the writer is king. The script is king. So, you know, there's a scene where the actor was adding stuff in it. And it was the young Lloyd, wasn't it? Yeah. He was concerned about a very talented young actor who was green and it takes either an old soul or wisdom to realize that there's a power in being quiet yeah (laughs) and when he was supposed to be quiet he would try to fill it in because he didn't feel like he was doing anything and that was a problem and he had to get his head around the fact that there is a power in silence that you don't fill it in and so it's you need to stick to the script don't feel like i don't feel like i'm doing anything i said you are but you need to be quiet (laughs) you know yeah and let the silence inform the audience of the tension of that moment yeah well the other thing is he didn't understand the context that he's the introduction to the older lloyd well that's true too you have to be in service of the character you're playing but what i mean is the one from the workshops where you very kindly invited babs and me uh to the workshops i thought he was more in alignment with you could picture him as the older there was much more of a abrupt shift that you had to imagine the jump in malvern between that actor and saint you know well that's right that's right now John Michael Lyle, who was there for the 29 hour and the workshop, was a much more seasoned actor. Very, very good. So you learn, or at least I learned, some of the real distinctions between an actor who was very talented. Uh, you know, he could sing, he could dance, he could act, but there's a nuance that you need to understand that it was important to me and important to Sheldon. I think it's a teamwork. It's a teamwork. Uh, 
Well, you're right. You're right. But it, it's funny because, you know, Saint was about, I think he's about six or seven inches taller. And it was funny because I said to Sheldon, well, we're talking about suspension of disbelief. Now, first of all, we all know that that guy didn't grow up to be Saint. <laughs> we all know that. The theater really shows you the flexibility of the people in the audience. We can make that jump, you know. But I would say it's one of the harder things to do in theater is to show someone young and then show them older and have it be plausible and believable. Plus, there's even physically, there are things you can do in film. I mean, you can even go to green screening their face and, you know, like Benjamin Button. <laughs> you can take the present day and you can de-age them, but with CGI. That's right. Yeah, it's very interesting. I gave a tip to a plastic surgeon. The doctors that we have in Strategic Coach are all where they're getting paid electively. You know, it's not insurance. Cosmetic surgery happens to be mostly elective. You know, there's no insurance. I mean, there is for disfiguring injuries and that, but not for... Like burn victims. Not for beauty purposes. Right. But they have like dentists have, they'll take a picture of you and then they'll show you what it looks like after you've been through their process. You know, it's a picture now and maybe three months down the road, a year down the road. And I said, you know, the real trick that you ought to do is to do what the FBI does when there's a missing child who's been missing for 20 years. They show what the child looks like and they now have, I think they're using CGI, and they'll show what the person likely looks like 20 years later, 25 years later. They do that with young criminals. And uh, I had a plastic surgeon who contacted the FBI and found out it wasn't an FBI technician who had created it. It was a private technician. And he got it. And so he said, well, I just want to tell you, we're starting on a path here. And it's not a six-week path. It's not a year path. But I want to show you what you look like if you go through my process 25 years from now, and I want to show you what you look like if you don't go through my process. Mm. But you still avoided having cosmetic surgery, I'm assuming. <laughs> oh, no, no. Yeah. But the really good ones, it's not like some of the actors who can't even go out in public anymore. They're so grotesque. <laughs> the worst thing to double down on is Botox. <laughs> well, you know, the interesting thing about I mean yours is barely noticeable. No, I appreciate that. I had my hairline, you know, my hair lines actually here, but I had it artificially receded just to give me a sense of because I look too young for my age. Well authority. That's right. That's right. I you know, and the looking too young gonna have its problems. I was still getting carded going into movies and <laughs> you know the wine store and so on. So I figured okay, I'll age myself a bit. Yeah. You know, so I, I did that. It actually takes longer to age yourself. Because you have to live longer. Peter Zion, I mentioned him on some of our podcasts, but he's a geopolitics expert. And he was just talking about that, you know, of 80 of the more populated countries, you know, who are advanced and everything like that. And Bermuda would be one of them. It's kind of like, you know, not an official country, but it's a significant place. And he said that there's only about six countries who are what are considered in the advanced world right now, who 10 years from now will have a bigger population. Everybody else is going to go through a population loss. And he said the key is 
how many people do you have birth to 21 and then 21 to 60? Because he says that tells you where your consumers are going to be 10 years from now. It tells you kind of where your consumers are. It kind of tells you where your workers are going to be. And he said, you know, if you don't have enough 21-year-olds, that's a problem because it takes 21 years to get a new one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the interesting thing about the tricks of theater, and I bought into it immediately because the story and the music hold it together. You know, the story and the music actually hold the play together. But anyway, I had more problem with the second one than I did the first one. And part of the reason is I met him backstage at the party and I talked with him, you know, and he's a very nice guy. And I didn't with this one. But I got a feeling there was a tension between this one and his role. You told me that you have solved it big time. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, it's really interesting because what the public doesn't realize, or most of the public doesn't realize, is when you do the show out of town, the purpose is, of course, getting it in front of an audience, getting it on its feet, so to speak, which means how the audience responds, making sure the thing works. And then you also manifest certain cast changes. And the cast can change on a number of reasons. Maybe we want somebody different. Maybe the person that we had, like what happened with our original Lloyd, was no longer available. You know, there's all kinds of things that you know you have to be adaptable towards because you're dealing with people's schedules and because it's live they got to show up you know there's no negotiation if they're not available it's not like well we could appreciate this and we can then shoot the pickup shots around no you can't do any of that you know so all of the work out of town is to get the show to be the best as possible we're taking a huge leap from malvern to chicago which is the second biggest theater market in the United States. As we were talking before we started recording, Chicago is such a cool city. I love it. Mm-hmm. It's, I think, really beautiful. Mm-hmm. We're going to take the architectural tour when my wife and kids come in on the day off after the opening to take that boat tour, which I've heard, I've heard from a number of people, Chicagoans and others. Yeah, I've been on it twice. Yeah. yeah, I just hear it's wonderful. Yeah. And so, you know, it's really interesting because there's a whole process and in that process, like all good creative processes are discovery. Yeah. And you discover what works and what doesn't work. You know, I had high confidence because I've been monthly in Chicago for the last 30 years and, you know, I kind of know the city and I said, you'll get more attention in Chicago than you will in New York because New York's connected to the fire universe. Chicago's middle of the United States. And uh, I remember the first summer we were there, we started off in November, but the first summer that we were there, and, you know, and we were walking the Michigan Avenue, you know, the prime shopping district and everything else. I said to Babs, I said, you know, I made an allusion to Chicago and New York, but there's one about Toronto and people say Toronto is kind of like New York run by the Swiss. <laughs> you know, Chicago, I said to Babs, I said, Chicago's kind of like New York, but with normal people. 
<laughs> well, I guess I'm living in the right place. Yeah, New York. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Neither Swiss nor normal. Yeah. <laughs> you appreciate it because you're an Ohioan. And Ohio, you really have to produce to get noticed. You know, I mean, you you have to have the real goods. So anyway, it's a real thrill. And we're going to get this one together right away and get it out to everybody. Give us the actual data now, the dates. It's a 12-week run, right? Yes. Yeah. The first is, I think, on the 14th? Yeah, the opening is, well, previews are from the 2nd to the 13th. Yeah. And then... And there's always tickets for previews, right, usually? Usually, yes. Yeah. Yes. It's 600, I think. The theater is 600. Yes. Studebaker, Studebaker. And one of the things that's great about the theater, I'm excited for you to see this theater itself, there are no bad seats. You know, I was moving around. Or, no posts. No posts. No posts. And the overhang of the balcony, it's substantially over maybe a third or so of the audience. So arguably, the first few rows in the balcony are very prime. They're great seats. I was moving around all the different seating areas in the theater to see what the show looked like from different angles and so on. I was with Adam Hess, my executive producer, and I said, these balcony seats are great. He said, yeah, they really are cool. So, you know, we're excited. One balcony, two balconies? One balcony. Okay. Do they have side boxes? And Yes. Yeah. Whether we'll open those up for sale or not depends on how high demand is. Yeah. You know, I mean, one of the things about theater and the business of the business is you can establish all kinds of different business models that if you sell 85% of your seats at full price and you'll gross this much. And then if you discount that much for the remaining, all this stuff, none of it means anything until you actually put tickets on sale. You have no idea whether you're going to sell a hundred percent. Some shows, this is probably only true in theater, like Hamilton will sell 107%. How do you sell more than a hundred percent? Well, it's because you're selling standing room. So your 100% is your seat fill, and then there's standing room. And, and the thing is, for a new play, which is what we are, always the big concern is how long will it take to ignite word of mouth, which happened pretty quickly in Malvern, where sales really go up. Yeah. yeah. So there is, like in any business, an initial burn rate when you're introducing it. And you're not generating enough to cover all the costs yet. I think your time period is going to be short on this one. I think so. And I certainly hope you're right. Yeah. And, you know, that and 725 will get you a latte. You know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is. I have to tell you about ticket prices. I went to one of the outward bound schools. I don't know if you know what they are, but yeah, still exists. And I, Went to the first one where you could be over 20 years old and go, and I was 20 in 1964. The time for the story, but I went to Stratford. I got there for about two weeks before the Outward Bound course started in Scotland, so I had to go to Scotland for it. But I was in London, and you know, London was dirty. It hadn't really recovered from the war at all. You know, all the buildings were black because they burned coal and burned wood back then and they hadn't put in the laws and it's clean but anyway i went to stratford 
and they were doing the history plays in order the week that I was there. So historically, you start with Richard II, Richard III, Henry IV, Part One, Henry IV, Part Two, Henry V, and then they went on. There's a Henry the, there's a Henry the Sixth. Shakespeare had to be in a playwright those days. You had to really be a suck up to the present administration, you know. <laughs> so, but ticket prices were four shillings, and it was fifty six cents for standing. And at the first break, there were always seats available. So at first break, the ushers were very, very accommodating. They'd take you down. And, you know, most nights or most afternoons, eight plays a week, just like yours, but they just take me down. You know, I'd get second row in the middle and everything like that. The shelling was 14 cents in those days, so it's 56 cents. But then I was there with a book, England on $5 a day. <laughs> and I said, I don't know, do I have the 56? <laughs> but I saw Vanessa Redgrave in her first season. I saw Ian Holm in his first season. Oh. Yeah, there was a lot of very, very famous talent. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Yeah, very famous talent there, yeah. It was just uh, amazing. I've said this on a previous podcast, but just regarding adaptability of actors and what it takes to be an actor. In England, only one actor is buried at Westminster Cathedral, and that's Laurence Olivier. Okay. He was famous for on the hundredth night of a run, he was as fresh as the first. Something that goes a hundred nights is a big deal. But he had a technique that he did before the play, and they had those spy, remember the spy holes in the curtains? Mm -hmm. They would have spy holes, and he would go and just look out through one of the spy holes, and he had this sort of mantra that he did. And it was, this is not last night's play, this is not last night's audience, you know, it will not be last night's responses. I am not last night's character. My fellow actors are not last night's. And he would just scare himself into first night motivation. And that is the goal of every good actor who's doing theater, is that the audience should feel that they're seeing something nobody else saw. Yeah. That it's that fresh, what they're seeing, yeah. and keeping it that fresh. Yeah. And that's a challenge. Yeah. You know, it can never become a job. Yeah. It has to be just what you're saying, which is why... You know, when you see great actors, I saw Vanessa Redgrave in England also, and not that play, she did Mother Courage. I saw Maggie Smith, Margaret and I saw Maggie Smith on stage in England. You see somebody who can, she can go like that and the audience is in the palm of her hand. I mean, she's just, every gesture, every move, every word, you're just totally hypnotized by her presence. And that's the thing, as much as I love movies, yeah, you don't get that yeah. from a movie. It's really interesting. I want to inform our audience, because I didn't, as usual, we go off on our anything and everything tangents, is that the show itself is running from, after the previews, 14th is our opening, we will be offering a very limited number of tickets for opening, because it's pretty much full. And then we run through September 3rd. So, and I'll be back and forth to Chicago during that time. Yeah, we're going on the 16th, which is day three after 
you know, there's the opening night, then the 16th. So we're there on a Friday night and we have, you know, we have some Chicago people. I mean, the thing is that people plan their summers and June is, you know, kids are out for school and, you know, and everything else. But we'll keep putting out the word because we have hundreds and hundreds of clients coming into Chicago during June, July, and August. And, you know, I'm going to I'm going to push it, and I'm going to push it. Why, thank you. I'm grateful for that. I'm excited for your excitement. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm very grateful for the support that you and Babs have had pretty much since the beginning. Not just moral support, either. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you like that distinction I made when we talked about it. (laughs) (laughs) Moral support is a guess. Financial support is a bet. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah. Wishing you well. You know, I mean, I tell people when somebody's, you know, had a tragedy or something, you don't say, if there's anything you can do, you know. And I said, God, what a terrible thing to do to a person. They don't have enough to think about. (laughs) (laughs) They have to think up a role for you, you know. (laughs) I said, ask them one thing. Is there anything I can do for you right away? Is there one thing I can do for you right away? And they'll say, could you pick up my dry cleaning? <laughs> oh, but that's the type of right. thing. No, that's right. An answerable question. Yeah. Well, not only that, and then do it and say, now, is there one more thing? And if you do over three or four weeks and you do 15 things for them, but you didn't do anything for them, you did a particular thing. For right. Them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, no, that's a great distinction. I remember when my mom was in the hospital. And my aunt Ida, who you never met, uh, my mom was being wheeled in to prep for surgery. And my aunt Ida said to my mother, Lily, I am not at all worried about you. And my mother said, Ida, if I was standing where you are and you were laying where I am, I wouldn't be worried about you either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yes. Things not to say when you're visiting somebody in a hospital. <laughs> yeah. A lot of cliches shatter when they encounter reality. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But to be continued. Thanks for joining us today on our show, Anything and Everything. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit acreativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com.